sometimes I try to uh, respond to those questions directly in class. And sometimes I'm just, I'm moving so fast, I don't. So after class, I looked at them and uh, I thought, well, I'm going to respond to a couple of them and just we'll, we'll do that and use that sort of as a transition there to John chapter 12. Last week, uh, the discussion was around uh, the matter of Jesus's teaching here, uh, really about verse 30, uh, 1236, about the matter about faith that some couldn't believe uh, because their hearts were hardened and others did believe. You'll notice that in 39 and 42. There, it's in that section there that some could not believe uh, because their hearts were hardened. And the question is uh, always there, is God doing the hardening, th- those kind of matters. And then in 42 it says, yet nevertheless there were many who did believe. So John certainly seems to be uh, alluding to the point that there are some who believed and some who didn't. That the ones who didn't, uh, if you will, uh, were hardened. And I, and I want to respond to a couple of questions or statements here that were asked. And if I'm going to do this, I might as well respond, huh? Right? Here we go. Uh, you said before that we should stop trying or working. You need to allow God to work in us. This message seems to be contrary to that. In other words, I'm contradicting myself. I'd like to know who wrote that. No. <laughs> uh, let, let me make this distinction. And I, and I think it's, a, it's an important thing. It, it's an important thing. I, I do believe that the Bible teaches that we're not to try harder. That, that's not the way that you live the Christian life. There is a dialectic, though, here. <laughs> That, that is, that is uh, important to keep. Here's what I'm saying. Last week what I said is that we should be careful to watch over our heart as we hear the word, as we, as we are in church or places where God is, and all the time. I think this distinction needs to be carefully made, and that's this. And I, I got this from Dallas Willard. You've heard it before. The Bible condemns earning. The idea that I can do enough or do things that will put me into God's favor or cause me to be more loved by God or cause me to be more important to God, the Bible condemns that. I mean, it's in the, in that, it says that, that's, not a, that's not an option. That's not possible. Where we get into trouble is that we can't make this distinction. However, the Bible enjoins and calls for effort. I want you to get those two, earning and effort. Earning is that I'm doing these things in order to place myself in a better stead with God or in a better standing with God. And the Bible says that can't happen. You, you and I can't earn our way in. On the other hand, it doesn't then suggest that we become so passive that we just sit there, that we don't do anything. I mean, you could, you could, you could uh, hear Jesus' word, strive to enter the narrow gate. You know, don't, don't, don't take this for granted. He says, strive to enter. Uh, Paul says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed. There, there are lots of verses that talk about effort, okay? Our, my problem, maybe, maybe your problem, my problem is I get those confused lots of times. That when I give some effort and put some energy into it, and there is some, if you will, advance, I tend to think I'm doing pretty good, you know? Uh, and, and so I, I think that this is not contradictory in that, in that regard. Uh, so I, I want to make that distinction again, that in watching over my heart as I listen to the word or as I walk my day-to-day path, I am not earning anything. I'm not doing anything that credits merit. I'm not doing anything that credits merit. I am, however, engaged fully, and I am expressing effort. I am engaged. I am involved. I am uh, uh, connected with that. So that, that would be a distinction uh, I would make. Um, uh, this other uh, concern, and it showed up in three or four questions about this matter of hardening. 
the hardening of the heart. There were talked about it. And I'd said last week, if you don't listen to it, it's recorded. That, that, that John is quoting Isaiah 6. And this is a big issue for people. They're a position or a school that would say that God hardens some people. And you can go to uh, Romans 11. I'd be glad to talk to you about that in more detail if you want to. Go to Romans 11 about what that means, about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. There is some concern or some issue there that it's possible what that means. One, Pharaoh's not a good guy to begin with. He doesn't have a good heart. He isn't, you know, rescuing puppies and giving money to the Boy Scouts, you know. Uh, and the idea there is that God continues the hardening that Pharaoh started in his own heart. The, the, the force of that verb, some suggest, does that. My suggestion is this, that there is this phenomenon in John 12 that, that John picks up from, from Isaiah 6 that seems to me to be, and I said this last week, and I'm, I, this is not the final answer. Uh, Stan and I were talking about this on the end of class. You know, we, we just may have to finally say at some point, you know, we don't know, <laughs> right? And some humility. Uh, uh, I know Stanton doesn't know. No, no, <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. Um, uh, that the idea that as the word of God is preached and, and given to people, that their response to that either causes them to become more receptive or hardened. That the word of God is not neutral. It's not a zero-sum game. When we hear it, when we come under it, when we are under the, the teaching of the word of God or under the, under the ministry of the Spirit, there's something that's happening here, right? We're either responding and something's happening where we become more malleable or we can become more hardened because I'll think of that later. I'll discuss that later. That's okay for me. I thought about this at the end of class and I didn't tell you about it. But it seems to me this is this idea that these people that John is talking about and the people in Isaiah are people who have heard over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And the result or the net result, not doing anything about it, not responding, not believing, is hardening. I tell my students this when I teach uh, how to study the Bible. I say to them, uh, there are two dangers that people have when they study. Not dangers, two, two challenges. It's kind of ridiculous. Here we go. Leave them alone. I got to go back to school this week. So I'll settle the two or three of these guys down. One is when you, when you read the Bible, one of the challenges is to not say, oh, I know what this is. I already read this, right? I know what this is. Marty... Leaves a talks about a text or something. Ah, I've already heard this. I know this. I heard so-and-so or blah, blah, blah. So when we approach the Bible or hear the Bible, sometimes I already know this. So we think that what we know is all there is to know. And I tell my students this, you know what you know, but what you know is not all there is to know, you know. <laughs> They're trying to write that down. <laughs> um, I tell them every word that comes out of my mouth can be on the test. <laughs> and... I mean it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, the other one is, the other one is not only that we assume that we already know, but the other one is a lack of intellectual curiosity. A lack of intellectual curiosity. What could this mean? One of my professors, Dr. Joseph Wong, always said in studying the Bible, we want to explore all the possibilities. We, we don't have enough intellectual curiosity. So we hear something, we think we know it. Well, okay. so, so maybe this is part of that. I, you remember in the Old Testament, what did God do with many of the prophets that when we see it, we go, God really did that? 
what? Do you, you remember anything? What God had, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, I'm thinking of particularly, to do some crazy stuff. Remember that? God told Isaiah in chapter 20, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to take all your clothes off, and I want you to walk naked through the town. Now, if somebody said God told them that today, what would we do? <laughs> Look at their medications. <laughs> God told him, I want you to walk through this town naked and I want you to tell the people, this is Israel. They are naked and exposed before me. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Jeremiah 27, God told him, I want you to go put an oxen yoke around your neck, strip down and walk through town. I want you to show these people that they are under the yoke of the Assyrians. They're coming. In Hosea chapter 1 and chapter 3, God said what? Go marry a harlot because Israel has been a harlot to me. Now, here's my assessment on that, and I think it has some, some bearing on this, is this. When people get numb to words, this is what God has to do. When people get numb to words, they don't hear it anymore. I, I, I'll tell you a story. I, I told Stan, we were walking down the other day, and, and uh, I was at a minister's meeting a long time ago. I won't tell you where. At a minister's meeting. And we were in a conventional kind of situation where we were making make some decisions. And there was a, some, a, a controversial issue being talked about. I forget. It was something, you know, like something I don't remember. Uh, what wasn't that big a deal. And I was sitting in the room. I was a young man. So that was a long time ago. <laughs> I was a young man sitting there, and as these ministers are discussing this matter, a gentleman got up, went to the mic, and he said, you know, as we've been talking about this, I thought of what Jesus said in John Bar, whatever, and he did that, and across that room I heard this, oh, come on, scared the living daylights out of me. I'm not talking about one guy. I'm talking about this collective groan that went through the crowd of, come on, stop quoting scripture. Blah, blah. I thought, can that happen? Huh? Yeah. It can happen when we begin to think that we control this thing. That instead of me reading the word, guess what? The word's reading me. You notice that? You ever notice that? That sometimes when you're reading the Bible, who's it really reading? You. Sometimes we approach the word, and I think this is exactly what's happening here, that as God has sent the word in Isaiah 6 and in John 12, that the fact of these people's hearts, it, they're being hardened because they're hearing the word and it's going in one ear and out the other. Can I tell you how to keep that from happening? Let me, let me, let me, let me give you a thing here real quick, and I'll shut up on this. Huh? <laughs> Plug your ears and noise. <laughs> yes. yeah. Here's the way to keep that from happening. That when you hear something, or you read something, or you learn something, you ask this question. How can I apply this to my life? Quit reading it as if it was something that you could just objectively take a look at and think, I like that, I don't like that. One of the ways to deal with this is when you read scripture or you hear God's word, is to ask yourself, whether it's in a sermon or a Sunday school class or whether you're reading it, what could I do with this? 
What, what could I do with... Now, you may say, you know, I'm not sure right now. And I, okay, that's fine. But asking that question, in my judgment, keeps us from becoming numb to what we've heard. Does that make sense? So I, I want to suggest that, that that's part of that. A final question, now, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll move on here, I think. I have some notes somewhere, don't I? Yeah. Uh, this one right here. Is anyone's heart ever hardened by God permanently? So it's difficult to imagine God seemingly giving up on someone. My reading of Scripture is I can't find any place that God gave up on people, ever. Now, I'm, I'm pretty careful about this. In Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28, there is the phrase that God gave people up to themselves. It doesn't say he gave up on them. It does say because they replaced the incorruptible God for corruptible creatures and they became idolaters that God gave them up to themselves. And go look at that. Gave them to, oh, up to their passions, to their desires, and to their minds. Uh, it's pretty, pretty remarkable there. I, I don't see anywhere that, that God, if you will, uh, gives up on people. I can't find it. I, and I've looked because I thought I was one of those people. <laughs> you know? I would probably have been a first candidate. And, uh, but that. Becky reminded me of this. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll move. We're only going to deal with one thing on your outline today. Okay? I realized that when I started doing this. It's okay. We'll be here next week. Uh, Jesus doesn't come back. Becky reminded me of this uh, because I've used this before with students. And again, I'm not trying to make us paranoid. I'm trying to wake us up a little bit. I think there's a lack. Uh, I think there's a there's an over familiarity at times with God that isn't good for us. You know, I have a friend that tells me that there's no such thing as old electricians. You ever heard that? Yeah, you know why? They go to a thing and they say, well, you know what? I've done this 20 times and I don't really need to ground this. And I've done it a bunch of times and I've got to get to dinner. My <laughs> Familiarity breeds what? Contempt. I'm not talking about getting nervous. I'm not talking about being, you know, a spiritual hypochondriac. I am talking about not becoming overly familiar with God's word or God's spirit or what he's doing to the extent that we think it's just common. Common. There, there aren't very many old electricians. It happens in life. You know, I, I look in marriages. There are people that say things to their wife they would have never said to them when they were dating them. Why? Overly familiar. Taking real liberties at that. I would never have said that to Becky when we were dating. Like, no, I'm not going to mow the yard. No. <laughs> I am injured. I told you last week, I'm on antibiotic because of that. I paid the price. But there is familiarity that breeds this that we ought to, I think, every once in a while, I'm not, I'm not again, I'm not trying to, I, I, I'd like every once in a while for you and me to think, when we come under the teaching or the sound of this, we ought to sit up. This, this is the, if we believe what it, the eternal word of God, we, we, we ought to kind of just sit up a little bit and, and take note. I'm not talking about getting neurotic. I'm not talking about getting nervous. I'm not talking about getting all judgy and judgmental about yourself. But I do think this is what John is discussing. That when the word comes, people's responses either bring hardening, some, or it brings belief. And it's somehow related to our response. Okay? 
All right, I'm moving on. I want to talk about today this, uh, and we'll do some more. Some essential words to the crowd. In, in John chapter 12, verse 44, at the end of what we discussed last week, these words are recorded. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. You might want to underline that word, sees. That, that, that's a fairly significant uh, term there. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in the darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Now, I want to look at this, uh, as I told you before, that this section here, uh, at the end of 12, are the last words that Jesus ever speaks to the crowds. Up to 12, he's doing ministry, and he's around people, and he's in in the crowds. He speaks no more to them. In John chapter 12, it breaks now to where he is only with his disciples, and then he'll be at the cross. And I think as I see this, that there are some essential words here. Uh, I'm going to look at a couple of them, and we'll we'll spend some. I think they're that important. I I just have to tell you. Some essential words. And you know, when when people uh, uh, talk to one another, there are lots of times we're just talking and jabbering and going on. But there are other times when we say some things at the end of a conversation or at the end of a time or we're about to leave somewhere uh, that, that they become essential or serious. The, the last four years, uh, we've had uh, a, a college student uh, stay with us in our home. Uh, we interviewed them, do an FBI background check and uh, a couple other things. And, and they stayed with uh, uh, Michael, uh, stayed with us a few years, Michael Facundo, who did a, an internship here, and then uh, Justin uh, Lensizen. Uh, who spent three summers with us, who did a, uh, an internship here. And I remember every year where they would come, I would set them down. And I'd say, now, before you come to our home, it's not going to cost you anything to stay here. You can save some money. Uh, you can take me out to dinner once a week. Uh, you know. Uh, but there's some things you need to know. I said, you know, I, I want to get some essential ideas. I said, number one, if there's anything in this house and there's only one of it, it's mine. Okay? I don't even care if you bought it. It's mine. Okay? Okay. The donuts in the baggies in the cupboard are mine. That happens every Saturday morning. If you mess it up, you're going to clean it up. Uh, Don't wake me up after 1030 unless the house is on fire. If you're on fire, deal with it. I have some essential instructions because we let him stay there to take care of our dog, Buddy. And I say to this, every night when you let Buddy out in the backyard, you take this big flashlight. I've got three of them sitting right there. I kind of have a little uh, addiction there. Uh, I have three, a big mag light, another cool one. Uh, Anyway, 
Uh, I said, every night now, when you take Buddy out, you go out there with a flashlight and make sure there aren't any critters out there. Where we live off 122nd, you know, the first time we moved up there, I saw this sign said deer crossing. I went, come on. And then I saw five deer go by, you know. <laughs> I mean, there have been skunks in my neighbor's yard, uh, possum. And so I say to him, I said, now listen, I'm not kidding you. I don't want Buddy out there because he thinks he can kill and be anything. I want you to be careful out there. I want you to go out there with that flashlight and you walk around there and make a lot of racket and uh, make sure. Now, those are essential things, I think, for him. I think Jesus here is saying some essential things. Notice right here it says in verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said. Now, this word here, cried out, it, it only occurs four times in the Gospel of John. And if you're ever doing Bible study and you want to know what a word means, don't go to a dictionary first. Don't, don't, don't go to a dictionary Go to the book that word is in and find out how that word is used by that author. You, you, you'll, you'll make some real mistakes if you don't. You, you go to, don't just go to a dictionary and say, what is the word, you know, or what, what, what does that word mean? Go and see how it's used. I can tell you this. It's found in 115, 728, 737, and in 1244. And this word doesn't mean just to talk. It doesn't mean, now, how, Jesus said this. You'll notice in the Gospel of John, sometimes, and Jesus answered and said. It, you know, it's just like, okay, you asked me a question. Here, here's what I did. When it says here, he cries out. Every occasion of that, the four in the Gospel of John, indicate what I'm suggesting is a statement, an announcement, something that he's basically saying, hey, listen up here. The word that he's using, listen up here. I'm about to say something that's essential, that's an announcement, that's critical. And he says here, he cried out, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees the one who sent me. I've come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Now, I, I want to suggest something here. That this is the first idea in this essential these essential words. Number one is the one Jesus reveals. Now, I, I know you think, okay, I know this, Cliff. I, I want to talk to you about this. This is something that I've been working on and teaching on for nigh unto 30 years. Nine to 30 years. This notion that Jesus brings someone that he reveals. He said, look, when, when, when you hear from me, it's not me, it's somebody else. God the Father. You know, I know we're a Christ-centered church, and we want to be, and we want to understand that. But we need to understand that God the Father is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Father. He's the one who loved the world. I'm concerned about that at times because I hear students sound like this. God is mad at us and ready to pour his judgment on us, and Jesus is trying to keep him off our back. Anybody heard something like that? Yeah, this is, this is a, a distorted understanding of that. Listen, the Bible says, for God... So love the world. John 3, 16. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God was in Christ. Let's don't get that separation there that God the Father is somehow mad and ticked off and upset. I sort of picked that up in the churches I grew up in. And Jesus is here to kind of take the wrath of God and all that kind of stuff off of us. We'll look at that later. But this idea... That in Jesus, he reveals someone. Now, now look, here, hold your hand there. Go back to John chapter 1. I, I know somebody just passed out thinking, we're not going over this again, are we? <laughs> John chapter 1, verse 
This is important. I, I hope I can make this case and show you this. In John chapter 1, this, this astounding statement in verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God who is in the Father's bosom. That word means heart. The Son, the, the only begotten who is in the bosom or the heart of God. He has, New American Standard translates it, explained Him. Uh, other versions say He has made Him known. That's an interesting word there because it's the word exegete. That's what we do with Scripture. We try to make it known. We try, okay, this is what it says. Here's what it means. This Greek term here is the idea that Jesus, who was in the heart of God, this is imagery, obviously, but who was in the heart of God, he has exegeted him. He has explained him. He has declared him. That's why Jesus said, when you see me, you've seen him. This is a bigger deal here. And, and, and I want to suggest to you that, that Jesus comes to reveal God in a real, tangible way. Now, go back, to, go back to John 12. Go over to John 14. This is a theme in John 14. We'll get there someday, I think. <laughs> I'm trying to decide where we're going to keep in John. We're finished with the crowds and we're done. In John 14, you remember Jesus is saying, I'm leaving and I'm going away. And uh, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And the disciples are shook up, you know. And uh, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do, how do we know? We don't, we don't, hey, we don't know where you're going. And Jesus, that wonderful, powerful, will, somebody, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus said that. And if you'd known me. Then look at verse 8. In all this confusion, Philip says, Lord, Show us the Father, and that's enough. Can I, can I suggest something to you here? Philip, in some way, expresses the most basic primal need for all of us. When we're in trouble, when there's difficulty, when things are happening that we don't understand, the one thing that we need more than anything else, is not the circumstances necessarily change, but for us to know who the Father is. That our Father is with us. That our Father is able to be... Listen, isn't it true that when we go through sickness or illness or layoffs or our jobs, our family, that, that the one thing that disturbs us often is, oh, what is God doing? Instead of saying, God, I, I know you're here with me. I think Philip says something we all feel. I don't understand where you're going. I don't know how to get there. I don't know what you're talking about. But if you could show us the Father, that would be enough. Are you convinced that God is a good Father? I'm not talking about just in your head, but in your heart. And the Greeks have a great word for that down here. The, Greek, the Greeks say that, that, that you believe down here in your splankna. Let me translate that for you. Guts. <laughs> Splankna in Greek is your guts, your bowel. Jesus is saying to these guys, look, if you've seen me, 
you've seen the Father. You, th th that would be enough. Now, I, I want to show you a picture. I want you to look at this, and, and I want to show you that, that I think one of the things that I've noticed in my own life and others is that, uh, and, and you'll see this quote later by Tozer, that, that when we look at Jesus, if we don't see a Father who loves us and cares about us, there's a lot of wreckage that happens because of that. There's a lot of pain that people experience because they have this lingering fear that God is not like Jesus, that God isn't a good father, that God doesn't really care that much. He's this big guy that's taking names and dealing with people. Now, I want, I want you to look at this as an illustration. I could say so many things. <laughs> I don't know if, if you've ever seen this before, but it's a picture that tries to help people understand how they perceive things. Now, there's a question here on this picture. Do you see an old woman or a young woman? Yeah. I'll just look at it. I, you know, I looked at this long time, and all I could see was the old woman. Anybody else like that? I mean, here's what's interesting. I told you Becky's the brains of this operation. <laughs> I went to her and I said, I know you've seen this before. Can you point? I can't see it. Okay? Here, here's what I saw. Oh, I'm going to get all tech on you. Oh, stop that. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. See, pride cometh before fall. Yeah, pride, pride before fall. And we're back. All I saw was this nose and this eye and this whatever on her head there. That's all I could see. I looked at it. I closed one eye, did that, backed up, got closer. And I took it to Becky and she goes, oh, sure, here, watch this. I mean, she is so smart. If you look here, this outline, and see that the, little, the young lady is looking away from you. Do you see it? This is her eyelash. This is her ear. It's her jawline. This is the hat. Like that. Who did not see that? Look at it again. The young lady is looking away. This lady is looking across there. This is her hair, her eyelash, her little nose, down there, her jawline and her ear. She's looking that way, away. Yes. The old, where's the old lady? <laughs> I can tell you. <laughs> yeah. That's who I saw. Here's the old lady. That's her nose, that's her eye, and that's her mouth. Can I, I, Bill, Bill saying, can you leave that at first floor? And I say, listen, I had to go to my wife. It's a little embarrassing. Go, yeah, look at this right here. And I'm going, man. She, listen. I want to drill this into your brain. 
some of us, when we look in here, some of us, when we look in here, see something completely different than Jesus. Some of us, when we look in here, our perspective has been so affected by life, by our own judgment of things, that we look in here, we don't really see loving Jesus. Anybody with me? Do you know people like this? I've been a people like this. For nearly 30 years, I've been teaching at the university. Somewhat for my students and for my own therapy. For me to constantly address the issue that the way that I see God is like I see that old woman. It takes all kinds of energy for me to kind of reset. In fact, I said to Becky, isn't it amazing? How did I see the young lady? Huh? Help. I went to Becky. I said, look, I've been looking at this thing. I can't see it. I think it's, I think it's a trick. You know, I was the same way with those 3D things. You know, there's nothing in there. They said, just keep looking. I said, look, my eyes are swollen now. I haven't blinked in four minutes. It took, listen, it took somebody else to help me. It took somebody else to say, you're not looking at this right. Listen, Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. Not me, you've seen him who sent me. I know I'm not going to get far today. I have to, and if you know me, if you've been around me, Dave Fatkin and guys that have been around me forever. Over 35 years ago, I was a pastor of a church of about 1,000 people and came to the point that I just hated God, hated him, hated him because I couldn't please him and couldn't do enough. Resigned the church, ran off to seminary for four years and begged God to heal me, to fix me on the inside. My perception of him, my view, and thankfully in four years of graduate school, I carried a journal with me everywhere I went. I wrote down everything I ever thought, processed through that. That, that the idea was that I had to come to the point of understanding who Jesus is. Jesus says here, if, if you see me, look back here at 12. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. See, he said, remember chapter one, nobody's ever seen God. Nobody's ever, but, but, the, but the son, the only begotten has, has explained that. Maybe, maybe you don't struggle with this. I, I don't know. I can tell you this. A lot of students that I meet every semester and a lot of grown-ups I meet struggle with how they, I'm not talking about in their head. I've got so much theology in my head. You would think that would fix it all. But it didn't. There was the humility of finally saying, I've got to bring my mind and submit it to Jesus. I have to bring every thought captive. Now go read that. It's 1 Corinthians 10, 7. For we are taking every thought captive 
to the obedience of Christ. Your thoughts and my thoughts are the result of all kinds of things. Let me tell you how you may have gotten this a little confused. Just, just suggest some research here. Uh, one of the ways that we get our perception of God off where we can't see Him are, are, are two main ways. There may be others, but there are two main ways. One of them is through significant relationships with people early in life. Parents, grandparents, maybe an older sister, an older brother. I have a very good friend who's a very conscientious uh, lawyer, a, a brilliant guy, and I uh, love him. He's a wonderful friend of mine. And we've talked about this over some time. And my friend said to me one time, he said, I just don't know why I never feel like I ever measure up. And he's taken a sabbatical. I, I gave him a sabbatical, or I didn't with the university, but I, I, I pushed for it. Okay, okay, leave me alone. Here we go. Um, the process. And he said to me one day, he said, you know, in some of this time off, I've had some opportunity to just think through how my early relationships are. And he said he had an older brother that every time he washed the dishes, they had chores to do his kids. And he, was, he was a young little boy, seven or eight. He had an older brother that every time he washed the dishes, his brother said, that's not good enough and made him wash it four times. He said, I always wondered why I ever felt like what I did wasn't enough. I, I, I always wondered, why is it that whenever I try, it's not enough. It's significant relationships early in life, whether they meant to do it or not. I'm, I, don't, I don't think they did. But what we did is we recorded it in a way that it began to affect the way we perceive God and reality. I always tell my students, you can do this if you want, to just think back. Or here, Here's one of the ways to unpack that. What mottos did you hear as a kid? Things that were said over and over in your home. Over and over. When I was a kid, I, I know I, my dad told me, I can't believe this. He said, Cliff, you were really shy when you were a little boy. I said, really? He said, yeah, you were real afraid of things. He said, you would hide in the closet when people would come over. I thought, wow, what happened to me? <laughs> And my dad, because he saw that fear in me, said this. Do the thing you fear. Do the thing you fear. I sounded reasonable. <clears throat> sounded like, <clears throat> well, you know, if you do, I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, I'm afraid of jumping out of an airplane without a parachute. Now, that's silly. I mean, he, he talked about irrational fears that I had. I, like I didn't like uh, needles. <laughs> Still don't. Um, I didn't like uh, uh, scary rides at the carnival. I was the kid eating uh, you know, cotton candy. Where everybody, yay! I'm down there going. <laughs> Part of it, I can think of every possibility <laughs> that bolt could come undone. That guy could hit that lever. Anyway, I, I just take in my own in my own mind, it got so tangled up in my heart. It got so tangled up that I took what my dad said as a significant relationship early in life, and began to think that God was saying that. Real short, Becky can tell you something. The short end of this is when I was a pastor in Houston. I was afraid of going into bars at midnight in which there was nobody who looked like me. So I did. I was afraid of outlaw motorcycle gangs like the Bandidos and the Dead Men and the Hells Angels. 
So I tracked them down. I did. I, I went and found them and preached to them. Probably told you that, you know, I, I get in this circle and I'm talking to them. And this uh, guy who's heading it up called Cato, ex-Hell's Angel, I was talking to him later and I said, uh, hey man, I told you this, didn't I? Why don't you come to my church? And I thought, what if he comes? <laughs> <laughs> On his... <laughs> tatted up, tat, you know, sleep. He flashed at me in a second and said, I'll never go to church. I said, why's that? My old man was a preacher. Beat me every Sunday. I'll never go to church. I, I mean, I, I, I went down motorcycle gangs. I went to bars where they were all Hispanic or all African-American. I remember one time walking in the Mustang Club. A friend of mine knows. I walked in the Mustang Club one time, and there were 300 people in there, all African-American. They looked at me, and it just stopped. Really, sir, I mean, there's no exaggeration. And I thought, okay, next move. <laughs> and one guy back in there, hey, that's the guy that brings the kid on the bus to Sunday's going. They went back to doing what they were doing. <clears throat> Significant relationships early in life have a profound effect. I didn't, my dad didn't do that to me on purpose. He wasn't trying to hurt me. He's trying to help me. But I somehow got that all tangled up in my view of God. I know people that heard this motto. If it's worth doing, do it right. Those people have the most trouble with the devotional life I've ever known. Because if they wake up too late and they only got eight minutes instead of the 15 they set aside, what do they do? Nothing. If it's worth doing, you got to do it how? Right. Hey, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing. <laughs> right? They're perfectionists. Somebody gave them a motto. You made your bed, you're going to sleep in it. How does a person understand grace that heard that? You made your bed, you're going to sleep in it. My dad always told me, if you get thrown in jail, I'm not coming to get you. I believed him. <laughs> My dad used to say stuff like, you know what? I expect to be more crazy people, you know, a drug addict, whatever, in heaven than there are lazy people. You know what I've done all my life? Work. You know what I don't know how to do? Play. I don't know. I turned play into work. We went to Colorado the other day, and I was a little depressed because I didn't make our vacation the greatest vacation known to man. <laughs> I, work, I was working at it. This has got, Becky, are you having fun? Are you sure? Are you having fun? Is it good? She's like, um, it's, leave me alone. She actually left the room and went down somewhere to be by herself. <laughs> and then I followed her. <laughs> I turn play into work. You see, in our fallen nature, see, the first thing the devil did was to cast doubt on the character of God. When he said to Eve, hey, God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be as smart as he is. The very first temptation was to cast doubt on the character of God, and the devil has been doing that every day since then, to me, to you, to every other human being. Doubt him. Question him. Wonder if he's really all that good. The second way, <clears throat> told you we're going to do one, we're going to finish. <clears throat> the second way that we typically come to our view of God is through uncritical reflection on life. 
uncritical reflection on life. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> a great theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died for his faith in the Second World War, talked about this notion that when something happens that seems so ridiculous, so bizarre, a 16-year-old is killed by a drunk driver. That because that's so hard to process, we say stuff like this. God wanted to take him home. Really? Who was his servant? The drunk? Bonhoeffer called this the God of the gaps. Stick him in there. When something unreasonable, hard to handle, hard to digest, if you will, just say, well, it was God's will. Now that sounds fine if it isn't you. It's okay as long as it isn't you with the suffering. But we uncritically reflect. I told you, I'll just say, when I was a pastor in Louisiana, uh, you know, I may have told you, I haven't been teaching a lot, so I probably said three or four things in the last week I'm going to say again. So this guy who was a pastor, you remember? Said he'd kind of gotten away from the Lord and I'd led a Bible study. And he said to me, after the Bible study, I'd been a pastor. He said, you know, I got away from the Lord and, and wasn't doing what I ought to do. And then the Lord drowned my nine-year-old son to get me back in the ministry. And my instinctive response was, I said, that can't be true. You're not that important. You can't. That's, that's not even possible. There's somebody who already died for you. His name is G. Can you imagine what that would do to a person's understanding of God? That God thought a nine-year-old was disposable for some knucklehead. I finally almost said to him, he was now back working in the post office, I'm glad you're not in the ministry. Uncritical reflection. Listen, I've got to the point nowadays, I just say, you know what? I don't have a lot of answers about why everything happens. All I do is I try to trust God and be thankful for His goodness. Yeah. It's all I know to do. What comes to our mind, I think this is on your outline, when we think about God, is the most important thing about you. If you could tell me how, what you really think about God, I could, I think, just about predict the kind of relationship you have with God. It's one of either anxiety or it's one of performance. I can't ever do enough. It's never good enough. It's one of, 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 of tension. I, you know, I love what Oswald Chambers said. I said to my Bible study the day, you know, we, we do this and, and this because I think we, we think God is not really that faithful. Now, Lord at, the end, it, Lord, at the end of the day, if I've done anything wrong, please forgive me. I've done that a jillion times. You know what Oswald Chambers says that is? Blasphemy. It's saying that God hasn't done his job. If you did something wrong, it's his responsibility to let you know. And he will. And don't go digging around and thinking something's wrong if you don't know, right? Oswald Chambers, in my utmost, said that is absolute blasphemy to charge God that there was something probably happened today that you didn't tell me about that I know is wrong, but forgive me anyway. That, to me, is a distorted understanding of the nature of God. If there's something wrong, he'll tell you. And if he doesn't tell you, quit digging around and trying to find something, Right? Quit digging around and trying to find something and say, well, there's got to be something. I mean, I know me. There's got to be something. I'm sure. Uh, no, until God lays his hand on it. Until God deals with us. 
Now, let me finish with this, okay? Go read Hebrews chapter 1, 1 to 4, later when it says, God in many and various ways spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days has spoken to us through a son who's the exact nature of the God. When you look, listen, here, here's the statement. Whatever you think about God has got to pass the Jesus test, okay? Whatever you and I think about God has got to pass the Jesus test. If it doesn't square up with him, discard it. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration or an idea here that I think may help some. Whatever you think about God and Jesus, if it doesn't square up with Jesus, go read Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. In many and various ways, God spoke to the fathers through the prophets, and these last days have spoken to us through his son, who is the exact representation. Here's where the problem is. Uh, I've got these glasses here I bought them the other day. I was a little offended nobody noticed they're new, so, you know, I'm trying to deal with that. <laughs> these are what we call old people glasses. <clears throat> They're what we call trifocals. I have three lenses in this thing. In fact, I can remember having to learn how to look through them like. Right? I'm about to step on the curb and I'm going. Right? I'm like, oh, that thing is close. Right? I mean, my doctor told me, said, we're going to have to train your brain. I thought, oh, no, not that. Not to train your brain how to look. And like, I was afraid to go to an auction. Like, <laughs> I just bought a horse. <laughs> you know? Really, I'm like, yeah. If you've had them, you know what I'm talking about. They're, they're hard, they're difficult. The top lens is distance. I gotta remember that. I gotta look up there. In the middle is kind of this intermediate where D is, I can see her. And then what made me realize I needed them was I couldn't read anymore. I kept thinking, what's wrong with my eyes? I'd blink them. And my doc said, you need something in the bottom here, right? The Bible is your progressive lens. If you get up in that distance one where God is creator only and judge and ruler, he's out there. That's an understanding of God. That top lens. We see him in Genesis. We see him in the Old Testament. That intermediate lens where we see that God now makes and establish a relationship with a nation of Israel and says, I'll be a father to you and you follow me. That intermediate lens where God is working with the people now. That final up-close lens is Jesus. When, when I dial down, when I look close at God, when I can bring him up in that closest lens, is Jesus. And if I don't stay in the right lens, if I don't understand where I am, if I don't say, now wait a minute, this closest lens right down here is the one that I've got to interpret Everything else, every other idea, every other notion. I, I want to say to you that this week, I, I want you to just play with it, not play with it, I mean work with it or something like I don't know, whatever. I want you, when you have a thought about God, to consciously, you know, First Corinthians, uh, or 2 Corinthians 10, 7, that we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. When you have a thought about God, I want you to capture it and say, is this consistent with the closest lens.
Is what I'm thinking and feeling consistent with the closest lens? You know, here's where the problem is. A lot of us have learned to do what we call emotional reasoning. It feels true, so it must be true. That's emotional reasoning. Take your thought captive. Whatever it is, I say, wait, now, wait a minute. Does this, does this line up? I'm going to read a prayer over you, and this is going to be the final thing, and we'll come back next week and do some more. I've told you this, but I want to read it to you again. I want to ask you to do this. Here's the application. <clears throat> so I'm never starting. I've been praying this for years and asking God to make it true. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. Remember Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. <clears throat> Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15. For this reason I too, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and the love for all the saints. Now, these are followers of Jesus. These are believers. You know, they, they have faith in Jesus. They have love for all the saints. Do not cease to give thanks for you while mentioning you in my prayer. Here's the prayer, and this is what I want you to pray for yourself. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Listen to that. Hey, I'm so happy because of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all his people. But here's what I'm praying for you. That the God of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, will give to you a spirit of wisdom. That's the Greek word Sophia. means intellect like that. Of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's Paul's prayer for these believers. I want you to have the wisdom and the revelation of who God is. I pray that on my list when I pull it out every day. I, I told you, I, I think I teach some of this every semester for my students, but often for myself. For my own therapeutic need to say, Cliff, you've got to know that Jesus came to reveal the Father and you've got to look at Him in that close lens. So I want to pray that prayer as we leave. I know I'm keeping a little bit. I want to pray this for you. I'm going to just going to pray this. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus that exists among you and the love of all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.